1: Orland Park Christian Reformed Church welcomes you to worship with us this Sunday as we gather to worship and hear the Word of God proclaimed. You can learn more about our church at groundedandgrowingradio.com.
2: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, chapter 2. We're going to be taking a look at uh, the message that was given specifically to the church in Ephesus. Today begins our work through these seven letters to these churches. First Verse 7, verses of Revelation chapter 2. This is to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, "...the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false." You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There is an all too common occurrence in our lives. It's an occurrence that's not new. What I'm talking about is the fading glow of a flame that once burned hot, a, a cooling where there was once warmth, a distance where there was once nearness, a familiarity that may breed contempt. We're all too familiar with the kind of excitement that can come along with the development of a new friendship or the passion that can characterize a, bride and a groom as a new marriage begins, or the commitment that goes along with the beginning of a new endeavor, an excitement that doesn't last, a love, a passion, an eagerness that somehow dies away after a period of time, this is a problem that the church in Ephesus faces, a glow that grows dim, a love that has been forgotten, and this is a temptation for people in each and every church. Because you and I need to understand that these letters that were written to ancient churches in Asia Minor at the time of the life of John, one of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, these letters that were dictated by Christ Jesus and sent to individual churches are not just for those original hearers, they're for us today as well. I need for us to understand that these letters written to ancient churches are deeply relevant for us in 2019 in Orland Park, Illinois. The message contained here in Revelation 2, 1 to 7 for the church in Ephesus was intended for us. It was meant for you today, and not just the church many years ago in a land that's far away. And the structure of these letters actually helps us to see this. Each one of the letters that we're going to be encountering, these seven letters to these seven churches, is composed in the same sort of way. It begins with uh, an instruction that, that John is to write to the angel of these churches. It starts with a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. It calls our attention back to Revelation chapter 1 because there's a, a reiteration of some of the glorious pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ that's given to each individual churches. After the churches are assured that this is Jesus who's talking, the churches receive some messages of encouragement and some messages of confrontation. This is the general way of things that a church will receive a a, a word of encouragement for how it is that they're acting and operating, and then a word of challenge for things that they are not doing or things that they were once doing that they have fallen away from. This is usually the case, but there are two churches that receive no words of condemnation because they are churches that are uniquely or particularly faithful, faithful. And there are two churches that don't receive any words of commendation no encouraging words, because they're churches that are unfortunately uniquely unfaithful. After the words of, um, of challenge are offered, there's a, a call of warning and a call to repent. And then each letter ends the same sort of way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the churches. Each letter ends with that same phrase He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right within the text, there's a reminder that these words are not simply written to the church that is receiving this message, but the churches should receive and hear what it is that's being said. Because the Word of God is living and active, we understand that we, a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are a church that should have ears to hear what it is that the Spirit of God is saying to us. To us, there's some within each church that needs to hear the specific message that was given first to Ephesus and then to Smyrna and then to Pergamum and then to Thyatira and then to the churches that were all here along this route in Asia Minor. And so one of the things that I want to ask at the beginning of working through these seven letters is that you would pray along with me that we would have ears to hear what it is that the Spirit is saying to Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. This is a repeated phrase, and we should take note of it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so would you pray with me throughout this series that God would help us to hear what the Spirit is saying to our church? Would you pray with me that the Spirit would give us ears to hear what it is that he is saying to us? Would we come with a sort of expectation that, that the words here contained in this section of Scripture are words that we need to hear and receive and believe and accept? Would you pray with me that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us throughout these seven letters? Today, we take a look at this message to the church in Ephesus, and there are five points in the sermon today, five of them. And you're probably like, it's just a seven-verse message. How would you get five points? Well, just wait and see. I was going for a theme of a G sound, and I wasn't able to completely accomplish it, so you're going to have to help me think about this and, and talk to me after the, the sermon if you have a way to help me here. So we're going to be talking about the glory, the good, the egregious. You see, I was trying to get that G sound in, and I just, it's the bad. There, I looked in a thesaurus. There's no G words for bad that was in the thesaurus. So anyway, the, the glory, the good, the egregious, the good again. We've got another good, and then the goal. These are the five parts of the text this morning. The glory, the good, the egregious, the good, and the goal. And so let's start with the glory. There are two things that are glorious here at the very beginning of this letter to the church in Ephesus, this letter that we should receive as the church in Orland Park. The first is this. The letter begins with, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now we talked about this briefly last week. Who is this angel or what is this angel in the church? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Now, like I said last week, this is something that has confounded people who have studied this, and nobody agrees what it is that the angel of the church is. I think there are three main options. Let me just lay them out for you. There are three main options about what the angel of the church could be. The first I mentioned last week in some traditions, particularly the African-American context, the angel is understood to be the pastor of the church. You see in Greek, angelos, the word that is translated angel in English, angelos means messenger. And therefore, what some people take is that the pastor is a heavenly messenger from God. Heavenly Not because he's holier than anyone else, but because he bears a holy message. He carries a holy message. That holy message is the very word of God. So that's one option, that the angel of the church in Ephesus is the pastor of the church of Ephesus, and that makes things pretty neat and tidy. But one of the difficulties with that is that all throughout the New Testament, when an angel is referenced, it's always, unless this is an exception, it's always a heavenly messenger. And so this leads some people to say, well, perhaps this is just a representation of the fact that there is a spiritual power that is a a part of each church and that this is kept in heaven by God, which is why the angels are in the the right hand of God. He holds on to them. That there's a, a real spiritual power that exists, even if it's not a particular personal being, that there's a spiritual power to the churches.
1: Today's message on Grounded and Growing in Christ will continue in just a moment. To learn more about Orland Park Christian Reformed Church, to listen to other messages from our audio ministry, or to make a financial gift of any amount, please visit groundedandgrowingradio.com. That's groundedandgrowingradio.com. This audio ministry is made possible by gifts from listeners like yourself, and we greatly appreciate all those of you who continue to make it possible to share this work with listeners across Chicagoland. Now let's return to today's message.
2: And the third option is that perhaps there is a particular heavenly angel kept by the Lord Jesus in his hand, who's a heavenly representative of this church in Ephesus. It may be that congregations of the Lord Jesus Christ have a particular angel that the Lord assigns to them, that he holds and keeps by his power in his hand, but nonetheless, for God's good purposes, he has said, this is the angel that will represent this particular church. It may be, it may be that there is an angel of Orland Park CRC in heaven with the Lord right now, kept by him. This reminds us of something. It reminds us that there's a plane of existence that you and I in our secular scientific age cannot generally see. There are angels. I believe that the church, particularly the church existing in a secular age like we do right now, needs to remember this and proclaim this and give thanks for this that there are heavenly messengers who will sometimes appear. At the behest of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King and the Lord of angels. And they are sometimes sent into the world, and it's for our good. I'll tell you what, I I love stories about this sort of thing. The scriptures tell us that some people have, have entertained angels without even knowing it. That angels don't often appear, that, that means in their full glory, right? As they do sometimes in the New Testament in, in ways where people are afraid when they see one of these glorious heavenly messengers. There are sometimes that people, we're told in the New Testament, people have entertained angels without even knowing it. Which means that sometimes they'll come just like somebody that would look like you or me. I was talking to a friend this week, and he said that he knew a woman... It was a friend of his, and, and she and her family were experiencing particular and unique family hardship. And they weren't sure how they were going to afford groceries for one week in particular. They didn't know how they were going to make it through the week. And at the start of the week, there was a, the doorbell rang, and the, the mother of the family opened the door to see a stranger that she had never seen before with groceries, enough for the week. And he handed it to the, the family, and he blessed her, and then he left. She had never seen him before, never saw him again. Now, it may be that the Lord worked and stirred up the heart of of someone that she didn't know to come to this particular home to give encouragement in the name of the Lord. It may be that in this context, the Lord had sent an angel to minister to one of his children. Let me tell you another story, another story that I sometimes feel strange talking about because, again, of the secular scientific age in which we live, and because this seems like it might be frivolous. But when I was in middle school, my parents sent me to a fine arts camp for two weeks. It was a violin camp. I wasn't looking forward to it, as you might assume. I was not looking forward to it for a number of different reasons, and one of those was two weeks away from my family was something that scared me a great deal as a seventh grader. I was going to a place where I didn't know a single soul, and my parents dropped me off and said goodbye. And I walked into the camp knowing no one, terrified. I mean, a wreck. I went and I sat down, I ate lunch all by myself. There, everyone else seemed to know other people or to have gone with other people. And so there were groups of kids, cliques already forming. And I, and I just kind of sat on the outside watching all of these kids talk to other people. By this point, uh, the families had left. But, but there was one family that came and sat down at this table with me. And they ate with me. They were very encouraging. The daughter was somebody who played the violin, just like me. She said that she was at the camp to play Violin. Maybe she didn't talk about that. But she said, I'm, you know, I'm a violin player too. And they told me how it was I needed to get to the place where I needed to have rehearsal to be placed. They told me everything that I needed to expect about the upcoming week. They had a, a deep knowledge of what the camp was going to be like. And, and they offered encouragement in, in a Christian way, in the name of the Lord. And I said, all right, I'll, I'll see you down at the place where we're going to be auditioning for our, our places, and I never, saw th- I never saw that little girl again. I mean, I knew all the violence I never saw her the rest of the week. Now, maybe that she was indeed a camper who was there that, um, that I just missed the rest of the week, although I, I knew all the violinists. It may be that this was a situation in which my gracious Savior knew that I was afraid and so ministered to me by sending angels. In any case... In any case, you and I need to recall and remember the fact that there is a spiritual plane. I went to a revival just a week and a half ago, and at the very end, the minister, Charlie Dates, who's preached here, he prayed. He said, Lord, as we go home, I pray that you would post angels on all of the four corners of each car that leaves this place that everyone who's going home might have your protection. I'll tell you what, I too often forget that angels are real, that they are messengers from God for the benefit of the people of God and for the glory of God. And we forget these powerful angelic messengers to our detriment. May God remind us of the fact that there is a real spiritual plane that we are tempted to forget, that there is real spiritual evil, but there is spiritual good that's stronger and greater. So the first glorious part of this book is that the book is written, this letter is written to the angel of the church of Ephesus, but the second part is even more glorious. Jesus, the ultimate power of the church, is pictured here. He is glorious, the King of the church. The words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is the power of the church. Jesus is the King of the church. Remember who it is who is speaking here. Remember, this is the Word of God. This is the Word of your Savior. These are the words of Jesus. Remember who it is that you serve. And the fact that he holds on to his churches, that he walks in the midst of his churches. He is active now by the power of the Spirit to uphold and to preserve and to keep his church. And so at the very beginning of this letter, there is this great glory. The great glory of Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then there's the good. The good. The next two verses tell us of some of the good of this particular congregation. Let me read verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and that you have not grown weary. The church in Ephesus is steadfast and endures and doesn't grow weary. The church in Ephesus labors. They work to the point of toil for the sake of Christ and his ways. They endure in this toil. Now understand, the Christian life is utterly opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. In fact, having been saved by the sheer grace of the Lord Jesus Christ should motivate us to work and work hard for the sake of the gospel and for the cause of Christ. We should be those who work hard for our Savior and our Lord and for His ways. We should work hard in spending time in His Word. We should work hard in prayer. Let me tell you, prayer is no easy business. We should work hard to make sure that we are giving ourselves for others. We should work hard to meet the needs of those who are in need. We should work hard for the cause of our brothers and our sisters. We should work hard to make sure that we're spending time with them. We should work hard to point them to the Lord Jesus. We should work hard to go into the world and tell other people about Jesus. We should work hard for the cause of truth. We should be people who are given to work. And part of the toil and part of the endurance that the Ephesian church was engaged in was doctrinal. They tested the life and the doctrine of those who claimed to be apostles but were not. You see, there were teachers at this time who claimed to be from God and yet their actions were evil and their teaching was false. And their actions and their doctrine proved that they were not messengers of the Lord. And so the Ephesian church rejected them and that was good. And for that reason, the Lord speaks well of them. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He says that this is part of their good works, that this is part of their toil. And let me tell you, this is the part of faithful Christians and faithful churches to test teaching from those who claim to be of God and to make sure it's faithful and to look at the life of those who claim to be from God and make sure that it is faithful. Let me tell you, there are so many works that are composed and books that are written and talks that are given by people who claim to be from the Lord. And the frightening thing is that not all of them are. Not all of them are. And part of the work that's entrusted to us is to observe, all right, this person who's teaching, What's their life like? Does their life testify that this is a person who believes God and follows God? Do they live in a manner that pleases the Lord, or do they gratify the desires of the flesh? Not that any Christian leader is going to be perfect. There's only one perfect Christian leader, and that's Christ Jesus. Every other Christian leader is, fa- is, is a fallen human being who is fallible, and so if you're expecting perfection from any leader, you're going to be disappointed. But nonetheless, you should expect a consistent life that's lived for the Lord. So, does this leader's life consist of lavish luxury or humble obedience? Are they faithful to their spouse? Are they faithful to their church? Do they submit to their elders? Do they honor God in their speech? And do they say things that are true? In Ephesus you see the, the, there were these people that claimed to be from God. They claimed to be apostles. They came to the church saying, "We have a message from the Lord." And yet their message, their their life may not have agreed with God's word, and their message conflicted with God's word. And so the Ephesian church was good not to receive them. And so if you, encounter, if you encounter a leader whose life is questionable or sketchy, don't follow that leader. Or if you find a leader that teaches things that aren't in line with God's word, you should reject that message. There are all sorts of leaders that will, that will give talks, that will, that will give messages, that will lead groups. And their message will be a devious one. They'll say, God really say this was the way of the serpent in the garden. And we need to have the discernment to listen and to say, you're encouraging me to question the message of my Savior. You're encouraging me to go against the one who holds the seven stars in his hand. You're encouraging me to disagree with the message of him who stands among the seven lampstands. I'm not going to deny Christ by listening to your false message. And part of any faithful church is to reject false teaching. And that's one of the good things that Ephesus did. They tested the teaching of these apostles so-called and said, no, 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 no. That doesn't agree with God's word. And this is good. We should let this instruct us. However, there's something egregious that they had done, and this is recorded in verse four. And here we have the words of Christ recorded by John in verse four, but this, I I I have this against you, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you fall and repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is the egregious thing. The church had forgotten the love that had characterized them at first. The church had forgotten its love. The glow had grown dim. Love was lost. One of the questions we probably ask here is, well, what does this mean? Does this mean that the love that they had for God had grown dim? Or does this mean that the love that they had for each other had grown dim? Which is it here? I think it's both. John here wrote Revelation some, in some places he's dictating the words of the Lord Jesus Christ all of it is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He also wrote the Gospel of John and 1st and 2nd and 3rd John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and John 4:20 says this, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother he's a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen.